0: I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, beer buddies, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Four podcast. During last year, I received a couple of beers from my good friend and the owner of the Cheshire Brew House, Shane Swindells. I've known Shane for a while now, but I have to confess, I'd never tried any of his beers prior to 2020. Shame on me. I received a box of Cheshire Brewer beers not long after the UK went into the first national lockdown, and in it were two beers from his Heritage series, Gibraltar Porter and an old school IPA called Govinda. I'd heard so many good things about these beers online. So I was excited to crack them open. Gibraltar porter, it wasn't so much the rich chocolate aromas or the thick mouthfeel, which in my opinion, was akin to drinking pure engine oil, which any, any good porter should be like drinking pure engine oil. But it was the sheer depth of flavour matched only by this slight sourness that you'd expect from beers of old, matured in wood. But it was Govinda that really struck me by surprise. Brewed with Chevalier malt, a heritage barley resurrected from a handful of seeds, The beer has an exceptional character that is unrivalled, in my opinion, by most modern beers. I don't want to say too much at this stage because I'm going to do a tasting of it live on air, as it were, only with a very, very special edition of this beer. But before we do... I asked Shane to share about Govinda and the use of Chevalier malt in his own words because, as a brewer myself, I truly believe that only the brewer themselves can really do justice when it comes to describing such a unique beer in their own words. So here's Shane Swindells from the Cheshire Brewer House talking about Govinda and his use of Chevalier malt. Hello, Nick. Um, Thanks for asking me
1: to give you some thoughts on brewing with Chevalier. It's a, a fantastic malt, just really, really um, excites me when I, whenever I get a chance to, to do anything with it. Um, anyway, we first got to brew with it back in late 2013, beginning of 2014. I went to a, um, a, a seminar held by Chris Malt at the Tetley Building in Leeds, just so happened I was on my way to see Alistair Sims at the time to get some a couple of oak casks to barrel-age some beer in. And um, the, during the seminar, they were talking about Chevalier and how they had a 200 kilos of it and um, just enough for a small brewer to do like a, a, a four or five-barrel batch. And um, anyway, I just jumped at the chance to get hold of it uh, because we'd been brewing a heritage IPA from originally brewed around the 1840s for a couple of years and um, to actually get a chance to, to buy the ingredients to make it with was just something that really excited me. So I did everything I could to get hold of that, um, that very small amount of Chevalier. And, um, and when they agreed to uh, let me have it, I was amazed, but I was also quite... Or well, quite shocked really, and quite frightened of uh, right. What? How, how? can I do this stuff justice? Because um, it's going to be quite a different thing to um, to a modern barley. Um, so uh, I got it and um, sat on it for a couple of months, two or three months actually. Whilst I did lots of reading and as much research as I possibly could, and um, I actually managed to get hold of a. Um, a bottle of a very, very small batch of Chevalier IPA uh, brewed by Populan Brewery uh, down in Cromer. Um, I paid 28 quid for a 250 mil bottle of this beer made with Chevalier, which was a very small amount the, the, the only two breweries that had used it before I got it uh, as far as I'm aware was Poppyland where he got a very small amount to do 50 bottles of 250 you know, mil each and Dr Chris Ridout did a cask with Sarah DeVos uh, where they brewed a cask of beer for their local beer festival and obviously they can get their hands on it because they're responsible for uh it reintroducing it and, and making sure it grows okay uh but anyway i got hold of the uh days of empire um iPA from poppyland and uh it shocked me actually uh i found it so sweet uh and so cloying for a six point eight percent it would it just drank like a like an eleven and a half percent barley wine so i decided at that point right i really do need to understand this barley and 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 fathom out what the best way to treat it was from everything i could find and look and read i decided that it was the right thing to to make with the ipa that we were that we were brewing um which is the beer govinda and that we should treat it you know the same way as as before the the thing with chevalier uh, a lot of people i think just don't quite get it and um they they treat it like a, a modern barley, and, and you, I don't think you can do that. Maybe you can. Um, well, it's a long story short. The first the first batch of Chevalier I managed to get my hands on was floor malted, and um, I don't think it was very well modified. And it was a good job that the beer has one hell of a lot of hops for bittering because that bittering addition, that massive bittering addition, probably about five or six times the amount that we would not put in a modern modern, uh, beer, balanced the beer out, dried it up, and made it really drinkable. So Govinda, with the uh, hop charge that it has, should be theoretically around 120 IBU. Everybody that drank that first beer, uh, which you should have a bottle of, Considered it to be about 40 IBU, um, and I think that was because the, the malt was so sweet and cloying, and the big bitterness uh, balanced it out. Um, so, if you use it in a modern beer with a modern hot ratio, you're going to get something that's really, really sweet, really cloying, and, and, and unbalanced, I think. So, um i think it's it's the sort of barley that uh, and i also think that the, the old recipes where you get this story of um, they were hop highly to preserve them on their passage to india and, and i just think that's Romanticism. Uh, I actually think that they had so many hops in them because they needed it to balance the beer out, make it um, and make them drier and more drinkable and and more balanced. Uh, That's my opinion. Uh, Surely other people have got their own opinion, but I think I'm I'm welcome to mine. Um, And The the, the thing with Chevalier is it's a beautiful thing uh, to brew with. Um, The floor malted version is my favorite. Uh, The last two batches of Chevalier Govinda that we've brewed have been made with malt that's been done in hydraulic maltings. And um, I thought they came out far too dry and there was just less flavor and, and aroma from the Chevalier and so I preferred the floor malted version. We've got some floor malted at the moment to brew with and I'm really looking forward to it because I just think it's gonna be so much better, so much more flavored. And um, today's specs, I was talking to um my rep the other day and he and he said it's it, it, it's not really as good as they would think but to me from what he was saying it's more like the first batch and I think that it's going to make a fantastic beer but it's going to have to be uh, dealt with uh, like you you deal with an, with an old barley it's going to be highly hopped and 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 the big hop charge against the barley will balance it out uh, but I find with uh Chevalier barley you get a lovely apricot jamminess when, when the beer is fresh and and it just it just seems to um it, it just gives you more body more flavor there's a lot more aroma with it and um it it just it, it makes old style beers fantastically we we, we brewed um Gavinda with it several times we brewed um Gibraltar Porter with it last year and that got great reviews. People loved it because it just gives the Chevalier Barley just gives so much more richness and and and, and flavour and profile to, to to beer. And uh to me, uh, if, if if you're interested in making heritage beers and 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 things from the past, then um it's definitely the thing to start looking at. I mean I think there are a lot of extra things that need to be done. So these types of things being being to, to old specs, you know, really, really old specs. Maybe as they were in the ancient, um, maybe they are, you know. But anyway, floor, floor multi definitely uh, for me is the way to go with it, um, and. Um, yeah, it's just one of those. It's a fantastic ingredient to brew with. Um, it just gives so much more flavour, so much more aroma, so much more body, mouth feel. I don't know, It's just a great thing to brew with. Um, you can tell in the mash tun. It just smells awesome to me. Anyway, it's 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 a great ingredient, and and uh, I encourage people to to try it, but. Don't treat it like um, like just, just plain forward um, modern barley. Even Marisota or whatever, you're not going to get the best out of it. Just mash it for a little bit longer than you normally would hop it more than you than you normally would not light hop early hop bitterness give it a lot more bitterness to to balance and dry it out and um, and you know by all means light hop don't yeah. get me wrong but um, I, I think with Chevalier Bar you need to add a lot more bitterness to it to uh, to, to get it to just to, just to give you that, that extra edge and, and, and go from there but yeah um, like I say, I brewed with that. I brewed with a few other heritage barley. So we've brewed with Plumage Archer. We've just done another brew with it yesterday uh, with Mike. Uh, came to see us from Crisp, and we brewed a, an Edwardian ESB using Plumage Archer. That to me, Plumage Archer is um, very similar sort of profile to Golden Promise. Quite light, quite dry, uh, much drier than the Chevalier, Um but. Just quite a characterful malt, quite nice. Um, and I, I, I've got a great expectations so for that beer when it comes out. The wort was lovely when we brewed with it yesterday. 1064 Original Gravity. And um, we've also brewed along here in Nottingham. Uh, which um, not many people have brewed with and I don't think anybody will brew with again because it's believe they're not growing it again but we got that, that was very poorly modified from what we were told and was going to be a struggle to brew with so we brewed a Kavik with it uh, which I think you may have, had, I may, may have had a can of last year um, and uh, the Kavik yeast uh, worked well with the the malt that was going to be difficult to brew with, and create a lovely dry beer. So, I love brewing with heritage ingredients, and 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 just trying to uh, create something that people um, from the past were drinking. Because uh, I just think it, it it gives a little bit more interest. It's more interesting than than just throwing hops in. Uh, you've got to think about what you're going to do with a beer, how you are going to build, and 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 everything else. And and you know, it's just it's an interest to me. Um, and and I hope, I'd love more people to drink the beers and try them and get the same sort of enthusiasm for drinking them as, as I have for making them. But uh, there you go. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the, uh, the bottle of Govinda that I sent you. That was brewed in early 2014, so it's got quite a few years on it. Um, and but I still think you'll find it's quite drinkable and also still quite bitter uh, considering it's had quite a lot of years to mellow out but uh, hope
0: um, hope you enjoy it, thanks Shane has very, very kindly managed to dig out a vintage bottle of uh, Govinda the Chevalier edition I'm assured that this bottle-conditioned beer tastes good even though it is seven years old, hence why I'm calling it a vintage. Just to be on the safe side, I've moved my Mac out of the way. So I'm going to open this live on air, this one bottle, and I'm going to taste it. I've had this in can on several occasions of being blown away by it. When I talked to Shane recently about doing this episode on Heritage Malt, we got into a conversation about the beer and he said he'd send me it. So I've not tasted this version. So the reaction you're going to get is my genuine live reaction. So I'm praying to God this doesn't go everywhere. So far, so good. Okay. Okay, I can't f- actually fit all that in my glass because it's uh, the, the head's massive. Okay. Um maybe I should have let this beer settle longer than it has. It's not crystal clear by any stretch. Um apologies, Shane. It did kind of literally land in the post earlier today and it's it's been in the fridge since. Um Right, so that I this is what I imagine beer of old looked like. Um so this I'm getting on the nose. I'm getting loads of. Oh, how, how would I explain this? Kind of rustic, almost toffee, slightly apple aromas. It does remind me of when I had Govinda in can. I'm just going to have to drink this. So here we go. That is so good. <laughs> that is so incredibly good. Even after all this time. I'm not even sure how to put that into words. Um, the, the flavour is complex. You're getting, obviously you're getting malt, but it's not just like picking up a handful of Otter or Best Ale and chewing on it. It's an oaky kind of quality. There's a nuttiness to it, but there's a slight acidity to this beer as well. um, and again this this is what i would imagine an india pale ale to have tasted like back in the 19th century i think even though there's an acidity there and it's again it's it's not aggressive it's it's slightly tart but without suggesting for a moment that it's somehow oxidized or anything i mean this bit to say it's been stored away wherever it has been for a long time it opens and drinks like It was packaged yesterday i mean the the head retention something else by the way if you've ever been to a brewery like timothy taylor's or black sheep and you see the yorkshire squares and how the the yeast is foaming on top it's almost got that kind of quality on top of the 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 foam Uh, but i'm digressing from the taste um there's so much character in there it's it's warming there's a spicy booziness to it but It's not aggressive. It doesn't suggest at all that there's any off flavours going on. You just get this... slightly caramel, slight vanilla, almost honey-like flavour to it. And, um, like I say, in terms of colour, it's it's really not clear. You can't read any newspaper through it. I'm sorry if you have a camera membership and you want to be able to read your copy of The Daily Telegraph through there. It's not going to happen. But... It's just stunning. I'm just enjoying every mouthful of it. It's, um, the mouth feels not as thick as I remember uh, Govinda the last time I had it. It's definitely not thin, and there's, there's enough body to it. Um, as I, I'm, just, I'm just blown away. I mean, for anyone that's listened to the Hot 4 podcast before, you'll know I'm a big fan of the Cheshire House and the beers that Shane makes. I think they're exceptional. Beers And I think Cheshire Brewers is one of the most underrated and unsung breweries in British beer at the moment. So um, what an absolute treat to get this in the post from Shane. So Shane, if you're listening, I'm sure you are, just a huge, massive thank you for sending this through. It's an absolute delight of a beer and um, I'm very much looking forward to coming over to the brewery at some point and getting to taste it direct from the source. So, there you have it. What an absolutely fantastic beer. If you want to try more of the Cheshire Brewers' beers, then make sure you head over to cheshirebrewers.co.uk and pick up some of their cans. They're just such great beers, and I can't sing their praises high enough for the quality of stuff they're just putting out there. So this episode is all about heritage malt, and... I have a confession, I have beef with a lot of brewers because a lot of brewers are obsessed with hops. Don't get me wrong, I love hops. I love being hit in the face with Citra, Simcoe, Sabro, Mosaic, all of them, those juicy pineapple tropical aromas like listening to Wham! turned all the way up to 11, 12 even... But malt just doesn't get a look in half the time. And there's this misconception about brown beers and people disrespecting anything that's either not gold or black or, you know, red or pink or whatever. Like, malt is as much of the heart and soul behind beer as hops are the star of the show or yeast is. People don't talk and give enough airtime to malt. But I also feel like a lot of brewers don't give malt and their grist bills the time of day that they deserve. I can't begin to tell you the amount of recipes I've seen from brewers for a stout, for example, where there's no roasted barley or flaked barley on the grist bill. And it's those attention to details about malt that I think some brewers really need to brush up on. I absolutely love chewing the raw grains. I'll pick them up and give them a good chew. I remember at the Shepherd Brewery, I'd be like walking up to Paddy with a mouthful and being all like, try this, Paddy. And he'd be like, what? <laughs> Empty your mouth. Oh, try this. oh, it's spraying everywhere. I'm exaggerating. But Paddy will know what I mean because he's guilty of hyperbole too. Um, oh, drive safe, Paddy. You heard what I said. But seriously, you know, chewing on a mouthful of Caragold or Chevalier or Best Ale, you know, you get so many flavors out of these malts, and it gives you an idea of where your beer's going to end up. Um, in addition to Govinda, on my table, my next beer will be uh, Otto, which is a Doppelbock by Thornbridge. The, the malt character on this is amazing. Yeah, you've got the banana and the bubblegum and cloves and the slight hint of licorice that you'd get from a Doppelbock, but it's got this chewy and warm finish... It's got this raisin and plum flavours that come as a result of the malt bill. What would happen if we embraced malt as much as we did hops and yeast? Today in the Hop4 podcast, I talked to David Griggs and Carl Heron from Chris Malt about heritage malts and how we can use them and how we can get the best out of our beers using them. We talk about some of the styles that we can brew using various heritage malts. And we talk about why hops seem to be the star of the show and how we can blend all these ingredients together. I have loads of respect for Chris Moulton Group. I've used their malts for years. I'm just going to be transparent now. They are sponsors of the Hop4 podcast, not this particular episode, but because of their sponsorship, me and Jodie Harvey had a conversation and said, wouldn't it be great to have an episode on heritage malts? So th- that's where this came from. Um, but I just wanted to put that out there and just say Hot Ford isn't and has never been an infomercial and in addition to this I go back with Carl Herring quite a way from when he used to come to the Sheffield Brewery Company and Carl's just an absolute legend and would give me all kinds of advice and tips from his years of working for AB InBev for being the principal brewer behind Sharp's Doom Bar and Carl's moved on from Crisp now to set up his own brewery consultancy and I just want to say massive thanks to Carl for uh, investing both in me uh, personally as a brewer and in Sheffield Brewery when I was there um, through Crisp Malt. And if you need some real in-depth and insight from a technical brewing point of view, then I can't think of anyone better than Carl Herron to approach and ask for his expertise He's just insanely knowledgeable. But I just want to put that out there while we're talking about it in this episode right i think i've banged on enough for one show about malt so there's nothing left to do but to crack open this edition of the hot Forward podcast all about heritage malt with david and carl from chris moulton group but before we do here's a few things about how you can find out more about hot forward and what we're up to as a business and a podcast if you're a fan of hot forward Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you tune in. Leave us a review because that helps other brewing and beer professionals find us. Follow us on all the socials at Hot Forward Beers. And check out our website, hotforward.beer, for more ways to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Today on the Hot Forward Podcast, I'm joined by Carl Heron and Dave Griggs from Chris Malt to talk about Heritage Malt. Hello. Hello, Nick. How are you guys doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, how's, how's business going for Crisp at the moment?
2: Picking up after, obviously, quite a difficult year. Yeah. Uh, 2020 was a difficult year all round for the, for the industry. Uh, I mean, we saw, obviously, some customers stop brewing. Uh, obviously, craft was quite heavily impacted. And if you could put it into containers, you were okay. Uh, but if you didn't have that, that scope, then... Then obviously it was a it was a problem. Uh, bigger brewers, you know, they continue to take quite heavily. Yeah, uh, people were obviously emptying the supermarkets of anything which had beer in it, be it bottles or cans. So uh, so they continue to take quite quite heavily. Yeah. we've seen a good you know, strong start to uh, to 2021. Right, and hopefully
3: pleasant to see that very few. I probably count on one hand how many people have gone for good. Um, so that's not too bad and thank goodness You know, I, I think particularly craft being extremely resilient and you know adapted the way they packaged beer and got to different markets and I think that's paid dividends because they've got their beer in front of new people Yeah. now those people come back um, so as Taps and pubs go up and up I think they're going to see quite a good boom in volume which is great news for us. Yeah. so far so good uh, just keep it up and working on new product development as well. So
0: we've got a nice palette of flavour and colour for, for, for the brewers to, to use. And, and work with. Fantastic. And how's the harvest looking for this year?
2: Only just started this week down here in, in East Anglia. Uh, we had some quite interesting growing, growing conditions. Uh, we had quite a cold, uh, cold, wet spring. Uh, which held things back. Well, it was dry. It was cold and dry, to be perfectly honest. And then we had a period of wet rain, wet weather after that, uh, which came to a conclusion a couple of weeks ago. Um, this week's been hot and dry down in in East Anglia. We've seen the combines out and rolling, and what we've seen so far looks okay. Uh, it's early days though, you can't, shouldn't make any judgement on the first few uh, first few samples, we need to see quite a few samples mm. through the door yep. first of all. So we're probably running a couple of weeks behind where we would normally expect harvest
0: yep. or where harvest has been over the last couple of years. I'm mm. interested, what's the nightmare scenario when it comes to uh, harvesting barley uh, and wheat? I suppose that
2: last year was was a difficult year because we had that very long dry period, just as we went into lockdown, if you remember, Mm. the weather turned fantastic and everybody wanted to be outside, but it wasn't great for the barley because it was very dry, very hot, uh, and that causes some problems. In terms of quality, you know, harvest was okay, uh, but the quality that was harvested was, was a little bit deficient against where we'd like it to have been. Worst time around harvest is rain. Yep. you can't get your combine harvester out there. You don't want to bring your half a million pound combine harvester out in the rain if you can, if you can avoid it. We don't want high moisture barley because it then causes us problems yeah. uh, further into the process. So, mm. so nice,
0: warm, slightly breezy conditions It's good. Yeah. Uh, so well, let, let, let's hope it keeps it up. There's been an, a, a nice welcome breeze today. <laughs> yeah, for sure. it really awesome. hot. <laughs> um, so yeah, today on the show, I wanted to explore heritage malt in particular. Um, so let, let's start with the basics. What exactly is heritage malt, and how does it differ from non heritage malt? You want to start on that one?
2: <laughs> uh, well, the heritage is a, is a quite an emotive term, I think, because I don't, there is no definition of what constitutes heritage malt, uh, I and mean, I think some of my Colleagues, Carl might even even have a different opinion to me on this, but I personally wouldn't necessarily consider mouse otter even to be a heritage rice because it's been in continuous production. So otter was first cropped in 1965, and uh, we could it's been continued to be grown all the way through. Whereas our other heritage malts, so going back to Chevalier in, from the 1820s, you know, it was grown all the way through to the early early part of the uh, the 20th century. And then it fell out of use, so that's actually had to be resurrected. Um, so, in my view, you know, there's other people on the continent who are touting varieties from the 1990s as heritage right. varieties. So, I think it's it's you know it's horses for courses.
3: I think the key thing for me is the fact that you know working with the uh, John and his Centre, you know, we were getting these varietals from the seed bank, um, and and that, in my opinion, is heritage because it's been safely stored away. And they've started a program now. Initially, it wasn't really about getting them back to brew with, it was about taking some of the genetic traits they've got in them because they've been out of circulation so long and getting them back into modern varieties. And thankfully, uh, Chris Riddow, who was kind of leading that particular project along with that, um, what's the lady's name, David? Sarah, Sarah, Divorce. Yes, yeah, Sarah Divorce. Mm. Um, Chris uh, does some brewing himself and he, he kind of contacted us and that's how we got involved. And what we discovered, obviously, we've got some fantastic flavours there. Um, and that's why we've decided to start resurrecting them and working with them and, and actually giving them to farmers to grow for us.
0: Mm. So, I mean, let, let's talk about floor malting for a moment. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some of our out there who with what it is, but what, what is the method and, and what's the alternative to ball, floor malting? I mean, is, is there even an alternative method? And what flavour impact does it have on uh, the barley and ultimately the beer with um, barleys and cereals that have been floor malted as opposed to ones that haven't? So floor malting is, is the traditional technique for, for making malt. If we go back, uh, we go, certainly
2: go back 100 years, you know, the majority of the malt made around the world would have been made on a floor maltings. So in a floor maltings, you know, we're carrying out the same process of steeping, germination and kilning, uh, whereas the, the, the significant difference between a floor maltings and a modern maltings is that the germination phase is carried out on the floor, hence floor malting. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so very thin layer of of grain, you know, hand turned, no forced aeration in it. So our our floor maltings, the one remaining, which is only one of three remaining floor maltings in England, built in the 1870s, are uh, 22-tonne batch size. So it goes through two little steep tanks and then out onto one of three floors. So we split the batch across three floors and it's manually managed from there. So it's shoveled and it's raked and it's then ploughed to to move it to the point where it can then go into the kiln. And the kiln here is still natural draft, so effectively light a fire and let nature do its course in in drawing warm air up through the through the kiln bed. Uh, whereas in a modern malting plant, you know we've got much bigger batch sizes. Uh, we're forcing large volumes of air through the grain to humidify it and to keep it cool. And then when it goes onto the kiln, you know, similarly, it's it's large air movement hmm. uh, to achieve a, you know the drying phase and. So what we think is it's the it's the it's the duration of the process, and it's the it's the very restricted air movement that contributes to some of the flavour differences that we see on floor malt and the extended kilning time as well.
0: Right. So on a, a, a malt variety such as marisotta, for example, um, if you were to take a Otter that had been floor malted versus one which had use modern methods like what other noticeable differences you would taste in those two and how would that come through in the beer is it noticeable or I would
3: say so yeah we did some um, analysis some mass spec and GC analysis Dave and we yeah that's right did see some differences. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, we've done some work to show you know, could we see a difference? So, there's a the million dollar question is anyone goes onto the floor malt and says, Well, how does this differ from the malt that you make on the other modern plants? And we'd had some anecdotal evidence that that people were picking up flavour differences between the say, as so you say, between Maris Otto, or, or another variety that's gone through the modern plants and has gone through the floor maltings. And, and one of the reasons that you know, that obviously Maris Otto has had its duration of uses because of flavor. Uh, so we did do some, uh, we did do some, some, some fairly sophisticated analytical work to show that there were different compounds present which would contribute to flavor in the floor malt that were absent in the, in the pneumatic, the, the modern malt production. Yeah. yeah. The hard I mean, part is tying those into, you know, what you taste.
3: Yeah. I mean, obviously that there's a transformation of flavors and different components. Um, in the malt, particularly peptides and polypeptides in the mm-hmm. um, and all of those are affected by the like low bed depth. And also, I think particularly, as Dave mentioned, the kiln, because it's natural draft, you're not driving off some of the delicate aromas. So I've had people brew with both, and there is more complexity with the floor-malted stuff. But in terms of putting your finger on a particular flavour, nobody's done that and i don't not you could it's just more complex you right. can name a compound that you smell or taste but you taste the two beers next to each other right. and I would say the floor malted uh, malt is is more depth more complexity and is, is richer is probably the best without experience
0: okay. yeah I guess that makes sense so I remember um, a beer I used to brew called Crucible Best in fact it was the beer Carl you brewed with me when you first came to visit Chevrolet brewery and yeah and I, oh. I I left the sample tap open and you were like what's that noise I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, and I'm definitely wondering so I'm like what noise because like, that that sort of gushing noise and I, I looked down and we'd lost about two barrels worth of beer um, yeah. but I, with that beer um, I remember um, using two different yeast strains one was just a like a, a dried yeast and the other was a, a liquid yeast strain and um, and then doing a side by side comparison uh when we had our tap room open and, and saying to customers look try, try these two and and tell me which you prefer and, and what flavors you pick out um you could just tell with the one with the liquid yeast strain even though there wasn't much difference between the two and you couldn't quite say oh well that's got a definite this or that there were, it complexity is the word it was just more complex and softer and more well-rounded is it is it a similar kind of vibe what you're getting out with the the malt indeed <laughs> Yeah. yeah i
3: mean obviously is classically multi-deep um biscuity and that kind of thing but just get more levels and more layers it does like that's a great description rounding it off and rounding the flavors yeah um and just getting that balance yeah. seems to work really well with
0: so when people are using heritage malts, typically what sort of EBC can people expect from the, the range that Chris do, um, what kind of extractabilities are, are is there much difference uh, between that and maybe highly modified malts, and, or are there any other quirks in the technical specification sheets that brewers should be looking out for when they're using them? I think the most surprising thing was when we, when we first
2: produced sufficient Chevalier to actually analyse. So we started the first production. One well, was 500 kilograms uh, on the floor and so that would have been the first time that anyone had molted Chevalier possibly for you know almost 100 years. Certainly, you know, in this part of the world, and we were, we were all quite excited to see what what the analysis, what the malt analysis was going to look like. Because obviously, we've got tools to analyze it, which wouldn't have been available 100 100 years ago. And what was astonishing to us was that the only significant difference between The Chevalier malt and that of that what you would consider coming from a modern variety was that the extract was lower. Right. So it still had good viability. It still had good soluble nitrogen. It had good enzymes, and it was really only the extract, and that is and it's and you can almost understand that because all of the breeding activity that's gone on has been driven to improve extract Mm. levels. So so that was a that was an eye opener, really for us uh, and i think from there onwards i mean Trevalier. you know i'll leave carl to talk more about the brewing side of it but you know we see fairly consistent results the only the slight one of the one of the one of the areas which these varieties tend to uh differ from the modern varieties they tend to accumulate higher levels of nitrogen yes so we do tend to get higher nitrogen crops from these from these varieties which may well have been you know uh indicative of what they were like 100 years ago yeah uh, yep. because the farmers there would have had wouldn't have had very good control over over nitrogen they wouldn't have been adding man-made fertiliser they'd have been going to the pig shed and and, and lobbing the, you know lobbing that onto the ground yeah, before sowing so uh, you know it may well have been that our forebears were brewing you know
0: with quite high nitrogen barley yeah and what do those elevated nitrogen levels do for a beer if you get a, a, a barley that's high nitrogen
3: What it tends to be is higher nitrogens mean higher enzyme levels. Um, You also have more amino acid content there because the molting process does break down some of these uh, proteins into their constituent parts, amino acids. And it's amino acids that provide flavor compounds in beer because those are taken up by the yeast and then the yeast excretes flavor compounds by utilizing and forming these amino acids into building blocks for its own own growth and reproduction. Um, So that's probably where the more complex flavors come from. Um, The compromise, of course, is that you've got more nitrogen in the grain, you've got less starch, you've got less starch, you've got less extract. So that's why there is that kind of lower extract capability. But in terms of brewing it, um, you know, enzyme levels are good. Uh, Surprisingly, beta-glucan levels are okay, so it's not difficult to brew with. Um, in terms of runoff and work viscosity, um, So it's really just extracts Nitrogen, I think, contributes to flavour uh, and makes it more interesting in the beer.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, um, should brewer's approach using a heritage malt like Chevalier, um, should they make any specific adjustments to the mashing regimes? But it sounds, from what you just said, like there's no need.
3: Yeah. I mean, what I normally recommend is give it an extra 15 minutes. Right. Or I mean, all right. If you're doing a 90-minute mash anyway, that's fine. But a 75-minute mash, I think, just make sure it's properly converted.
2: I think the only exception that could, could possibly be with Hannah, where we've yes. seen that. So Hannah is the uh, original Pilsen variety, uh, and again, we've got you know it's quite exciting again to see what the analysis of the first batch of that was going to look like for more than a hundred years, and that exceptionally low colour. Now. You know, I've got a bit of a theory that that's why it was selected. For Wilson, it was, you know, it was picked, well, it wasn't picked because of that, but having seen that it was given low colour, it was, you know, it became the variety of, or the, the barley of choice. But that tanner tends to be a little bit lower levels of nitrogen modification. So it does suit temperature programmed or even decoction. You know, we've tried, we've got one or two new brewers who are just who are rediscovering the joys of, of decoction, mashing, know they're getting good performance out of it and that's again that's how it would have been that's how it would have been brewed with so maybe the expectation that you can you can handle it like you would in modern varieties is isn't quite right so you do have to think think historical when you're using a heritage yeah heritage I mean, obviously,
3: the Moravian Moravia is a, it's a content on Mali and they do grow differently so you know it would have developed in a different way and so it's not it's more difficult to modify. You know, we do leave it for longer on the floors. That, that's where you've got the flexibility. On the floors, you don't move it on to the next stage until you've done your rub with your grain. And you make sure that it's, you know, you've fully converted and, and, and uh, modified the starch in, in the in the endosperm. And uh, that means that probably a a hana would take maybe seven or eight days germination. And Maris Auto, which we do put across the floors, the number 19 Maris Auto is specifically made on number 19 floor bolt plant. Um, then you know that might take five days, you know, because it's a little more than so. But yeah, um, Dave's right, we do need to be a little bit more careful in terms of temperature control with Hannah. And if you cannot, if you can step mash then or decoct um to bring temperature up from say starting at 52 probably give it a proteolytic stand and then
0: bring it up to scarification temperatures in you know, sort of 65 or so. Yep. Um, and that, that does help with yields and also with clarity. Mm. So for brewers that have a single infusion mash tun, which obviously there are quite a lot of brewers out there, myself included, um, that are limited in that way, um, is there a way with doing those step mashes, What what's the best approach for doing that or should you just sort of steer clear and leave it to people that have got Nicer systems.
3: Good question. I think the first year that we released it commercially, it was probably a better crop than the second year. So, as Dave spoke about earlier, twenty twenty was tough across the board, um, and the heritage varieties suffered the same as the modern ones in terms of you know climate and growing conditions. So, um, the first year that we did it. People were mashing it at 63, giving it 75 minutes. Perfectly all right. No problems at all. The 2020 crop, we've definitely recommended to customers that they step-mash that. Um, I think a couple of people have just done it single temperature, but their yields are well down. So it is possible. In a smaller brewery, you could raise temperature with water. So you might do a thicker mash, mashing at 52, and then... Sparge and stir to bring the temperature up. Or you could do the decoction, which is taking a portion of the mash out, raising it, in actual fact, boiling it, and then putting it back in. And that gives you the temperature rise, which obviously takes a little bit of calculation to be be able to get the the accurate temperature, relatively accurate temperature. Um, And that that method in itself brings a certain kind of Czech, Central European lager character to those beers. Mm Purely by using that method, so you know, it's, in some ways, it's quite a good thing to do because it gives that unique flavour. If you're looking for that style of meal so yep. it's possible. You know, you've got your kettle, you've got a kettle sat there next to your ashtray, it's empty. So, you could, in theory, eat it up in there and then bring it back again. But you'd need some fancy pie work to do that.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I've got a very, very tiny system, but I've, I've just thinking about when I was back at Sheffield Brewery on the. I'm, I'm, that would be interesting. Uh, there. That would have been interesting, yeah. wouldn't it? Um, particularly uh, getting it back up from you know uh, downstairs up to that mezzanine floor. <laughs> yeah. We'll
3: so, um, yeah. We'd, I mean Sheffield, just to explain, Dave. You now the mash tun's above the kettle. Right. Theirs, so you'd have to get
0: it back up. right back up. Yeah. So it would be yeah. Quite a challenge that. Yeah. It's like a yeah. tower brewing system. That's how it's yeah. set up. So, worse uh, quirky yeah. <laughs> very quirky yeah. best thing about it was um you could tip you literally tip the mash tun um to get all the grain out and just go down and shoot. Oh,
1: so it was okay, it, it was
0: it was the envy of most of the brews in sheffield that yeah. come in and we were like wow i wish i could do that you know just go into these bins although um the, the worst bit was on my third ever brew um i'd not fully drained the mash tun like i thought i had so at the end of the brew day i tried tipping it i'm like man this is heavy but I thought, oh, it's just, oh. A, you know, it's a higher ABV beer, so I just uh, put it down to that, but um, mm. it wasn't. And then mm. a, 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 I can't remember how many kilos of grain came and worked, came rushing mm. out all over the mezzanine floor, all over the first floor, all oh, over the goodness. ground
3: floor. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, took,
0: it took two hours to clean. And, uh, we had a guy working there, just like a part-time guy, who, who bless him, he, he helped for a while. Then after a bit, when it, when it literally came to four o'clock and he went, right, I'm going now. It's like, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, fun and games. So, yeah. I mean, you've talked about a few different uh, varieties there. Um, but What, what other uh, heritage varieties do you do and, and what are some of the intrinsic qualities that each variety has and can contribute towards your beers?
2: I suppose the whole project really
0: kicked off with,
2: with Chevalier. Uh, and As Carl said, it was with the johnniness team and they were looking for fusarium resistance in in old varieties uh, and then having re commercialized chevalier they did this sort of spin-off company called new heritage Barleys, uh, which we're working working with and given their access to the to the germplasm they can present us with small quantities that we can micromult and, and work through and that's really how the hannah emerged after this obviously you know you're we're familiar with 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 these older barley's and the heritage, the history behind them. So you know, Hannah was a was a good one to to move forward. Uh, we also have done plumage Archer. So plumage Archer was the first deliberately crossbred malting barley true variety in crossbred by Dr Bevan in in the early 1900s from plumage and Archer. Uh, and so we've also got that on the go at the moment. And then there's a nice connection from Plumage Archer into Marisota, because Plumage Archer was one of the grandparents of, of Marisota. So you know, there's quite a nice sort of flow through the pipeline that way. Uh, obviously not brewing, but we're looking at distilling uh, varieties as well, of uh, distilling heritage, We're trying to identify there. I mean, a lot of the distillers are, the smaller craft distillers are interested, in, as much interested in flavour as the brewers, brewer's are. And, you know can they achieve different flavours through different varieties of barley and can they use heritage barley to recreate some of the older whisky styles which might still be still be around so the bottom is we have to balance we still have to get farmers to grow these bodies so you know some of them can be challenging. Mm. Uh, we get data back from from trial plots which says you know really okay might have, it might have some malting attributes, but don't even try and grow it. Actually, I guess the yields are going to be so poor, it's going to get so diseased that it's going to be a disaster trying to uh, trying to work with. So I mean the farmers have obviously got. Tools which they didn't their their great great grandfathers didn't have you know agrochemicals and uh, sh- straw shorteners and the such like which can manage the crop better but I mean they're still quite challenging I mean there was a I was in a field of hannah last week and, you know the the wind had blown and quite a bit of it had fallen over okay. because they're quite weak they're quite weak strawed varieties so uh, they do suffer a little bit when the weather when the wind and the rain hits hits them
0: mm. are they all base malts yeah, yeah,
3: in the main, yeah. Yeah, they're base Um, do- We are looking at on the MPD program about producing some different varieties. We did a Hanna Vienna, for
0: example. Right.
3: Um, I think some of that's going to be available um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, and Western Brewery brewed, uh, yeah, with 100% of that. Um, it's amazing. Yep. It really is tasty and different.
2: Yeah, I think that, might, that um, might be here. There's a box in the post room addressed to you from Western Brewery. I didn't open
3: good. it. I look forward to
2: Excellent. Yeah,
3: so um, we, we, it's certainly not um, out of the ordinary to do that. It's possible, obviously, we, we only get so much heritage barley to come and to, to bring back a malt because we have to save the seed to sort of mm. But uh, if there's enough, we'll probably do a small batch release. Um, So that was the Anne Vienna. We might do uh, a Chevalier gold. That's another thing I want to try and play with, which will be probably a bit darker than the Vienna and have all that lovely Chevalier malty depth and the marmalade characters and that kind Mm. of thing just be a bit more intensely biscuit because it's got a higher colour.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, A bit like, like uh, do you remember mild ale malts? They were kind of between Vienna and Munich. Mm. So if I imagine a Chevalier with... That kind of colour and flavour,
0: and that would be quite special, I think. Yeah. For making a nice autumn brew. Yeah. But you get a nice cast That's, beer out of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just looking at uh, crisp blends, what would you personally recommend, Carl, for various beer styles if you're using heritage malts like Chevalier or Hannah?
3: Um, in terms of maximum flavour and contribution, you just use it like a regular base malt. Um, but we've done we've had a couple of customers and I've done some work on on our grain at the Maltings and even a 20% inclusion of Chevalier for example will bring more depth and richness so you can use it almost as a flavouring malt Um, so if you don't want to commit to doing 100% then you can obviously use some to boost flavour in a particular style Yeah, ESB or something like that, you might put 20 25% Chevalier in there. If you're doing um, a barley wine, you'd probably go 100% Chevalier, you know, and then just get all the flavor by extending the boil and getting some color in there and then choosing the hops to complement that kind of style. So,
0: yeah,
3: that's the kind of things you could do.
0: I mean, it it seems like most breweries nowadays lean quite heavily on. Hazy IPAs to drive sales. I mean, could you ever use a heritage malt to produce a modern hot forward craft beer style like that? Or do they tend to lend themselves more to artisanal, bespoke, malt driven beers?
3: I think the plumage arch is fantastic because it's quite clean. It's got an interesting grassy note and um, probably like some more kind of citrusy notes as well. So that tends to work really well. And obviously, if you brew that with some oats and some wheat, you're going to get the murk, you're going to get the haze, and then obviously build the hops on top of that. Um, that would work really nicely. And then some of the bigger, kind of more bold West Coast IPAs, which sometimes are coming out rather cloudy now, those are well suited to Chevalier because you've got kind of a balance, a backbone for the hops to work off. And that what that sort of combines, so like 6.5% ABV and above, on IPAs uh, and then for New England IPAs and more hazy styles of beer I'd probably go with Chevalier uh, with, with Archer.
0: right amazing brilliant well th- thanks for being on the podcast this week guys and apologies for the uh, technical issues we've had um, h- how can people find out more about um, these variety of malts that Chris offer and if, and you know how can they um, get in touch with you should they need any help technically when it comes to heritage malts
3: um, well, we've got uh, all the details are on the website. And there is actually uh, a Heritage Malt handbook now, an individual handbook that goes to all we've been talking about and more in terms of details. Um, you can contact your local regional sales manager. So Mike Mike Benson looks after Scotland and the northwest of England and Wales. I look after the east of England. So I've got from Berrycon Tweed down to Ipswich. And then Nigel Gibbons, he looks after the south, so he's got Bristol, London, and everything south of that. So uh, you can get in touch with us through the website. Our phone numbers are on there, and uh, we can give you some advice. And uh, there's lots of information, and always here for technical help. Uh, we've got recipes for these as well there in the handbook. So plenty of information. First port call, call, and then just give us a shout if you need
0: us. Nice one. Brilliant. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. Pleasure, Nick. Good to see you.
1: Thank
2: you. nice no, has been fun.
0: Thank you. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers!